I'm going to invite Shelby to come forward now and to read our scripture passages this morning. As she comes, would you please stand? First Samuel twenty three fifteen to 18. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Zip at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Jonathan 15, 12, or John 15, 12 through 15. <laughs> this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Shelby. You can be seated. Uh, So if you did miss last week, uh, this is a a new sermon series that we're in for about five or six weeks called Uncommon uh, Friendship. And we're exploring the idea that as Christians, uh, we are meant to experience uh, very deep, life-giving, and lasting friendships. And we acknowledged last week that even though we're meant to experience that kind of friendships, probably many of us, if not most of us, don't uh, on on a regular basis. At least not the kind of friendship that we saw articulated by Jesus last week. Uh, week. There's not a lot in our world that supports a vision for friendship that we see uh, in the Bible. And, uh, and in recent generations, our churches have, have accommodated to the relational shallowness of our culture. And so probably most of us uh, have, have forgotten uh, the spiritual resources that are meant to nourish these deep and abiding uh, friendships. So in these weeks, we're addressing friendships between Christians. And, and I want to be very clear Um, Most of us, whether you this morning are a Christian or not a Christian, you have friendships with either Christians or people who are not Christians, and that's normal and good and healthy, and we we, uh, want to see more and more of that. However, as we began to see last week and we'll continue to see this week, there's something categorically different about uh, certain kinds of friendships between uh, Christian people. Author and theologian Wesley Hill, he puts it this way. He says, Christians came to believe that the truest and most durable relationships were friendships that were sealed with the common participation in the Eucharistic body and blood of Christ. If blood was thicker than water, then Eucharistic blood is thickest of all. In other words, uh, those of us who uh, share in common the life, death, and resurrection of of Jesus as our identity and hope share something profoundly deep that is meant to impact our friendships, our relationships with each other. And so last week we said that, um, that we're going to use this phrase spiritual friendships to kind of differentiate what we're talking about. Uh, this is language that uh, was used by uh, Christian thinkers and theologians for many generations and has only recently been forgotten. And, and we tried to define spiritual friendship in a few different ways. So we can put this up here now. Spiritual friendship, we said, the foundation is Jesus. The expression is love. The trajectory is holiness. The bond and the affinity, or I'm sorry, the bond is affinity 
and uh, affection. And, and again, if you weren't here last week, I hope that, I know that doesn't unpack everything we dug into, but it hopefully gives you a snapshot of how we're thinking about friendship uh, so far. Now, the passage that you heard uh, Shelby read first this morning came from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 15 uh, through 18. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to keep it open to 1 Samuel. We're going to be uh, kind of in and out of a few different chapters there, and it would be a helpful place for you to jot down uh, some notes if you're taking them. But just as a little bit of background, Saul is Israel's first king. Uh, David was a shepherd, and through a series of events, he came to serve King Saul first as a uh, a musician in his court, and then as one of his military uh, leaders. Uh, but Saul, um, who was volatile to say the least, turned on David and eventually wanted him killed. Wanted David. All right. You got that, Garen? Okay. Um, I'm going to just pause because there's no way I'm going to compete with whatever's happening back there. This is where I would tell a witty antidote if I, you know, had a quick personality like this, but I got nothing. Okay, I don't think anything's come crashing down again, so I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i continue on here. Saul uh, is Israel's first king. Uh, David is in his court. Saul turns against David, and we'll unpack this a little bit more as we, as we go on. You'll see sort of how this plays out a little bit. Uh, but what makes this particularly interesting is that Saul has a son named Jonathan. What's, what's Saul's son's name? Yeah, see, I can see where y'all are looking. That's good. Okay, I'm just testing you, just testing you. Saul's son's name is Jonathan, and Jonathan and David actually become very good friends. They become very, very close friends, and we'll explore their friendship a little bit uh, this morning. Uh, the scene that Shelby read for us is, is poignant. It's a striking scene. It's uh, in the middle of a time of terror and fear and violence, and here these two friends meet and greet each other with encouragement, with compassion, and with great bravery given the circumstances that are around them. What they don't know, uh, and what we don't know if we're reading this for the first time, is that in this passage, Jonathan and David are seeing each other for the last time. Uh, A few chapters later, uh, Jonathan will be killed in battle. He'll lose his life, and Saul will fall on his own sword. And so this moment, they don't know it at the time, but this is the last time that Jonathan and David uh, share conversation and see each other in, in person. There's other examples of friendship in the Bible. We mentioned some last week. Naomi uh, and Ruth would be a good example. Paul and Timothy, Jesus and his apostle John, Jesus and Lazarus. Uh, I think you could make the case that Jesus and Mary Magdalene, all of these would be good examples uh, of significant friendships in the Bible. But the friendship between Jonathan and David is probably the most well-known friendship in the entire uh, a Bible. It's also, interestingly enough, the friendship that is most often cited by Christian thinkers and theologians from many generations ago, decades and centuries ago, who wrote and reflected on friendship. They often came back to Jonathan and David. 
So given that we have so few examples of spiritual friendship in our day, in our time, I think it'll be helpful to spend a few minutes reviewing the friendship between David and Jonathan. And it's true that much of their relational experience is bound by gender, by their class, by their culture, by the time that they lived in. There's certainly gaps between their experience of friendship and our experience of friendship. However, I do think the decisions they make to cultivate, to nourish their friendship, can still speak to us across these gaps. So for the next few minutes, we're going to look at this exemplary friendship, and then we'll end by asking how you and I can cultivate the same sort of friendship. Before David and Jonathan ever even met, one theologian says they shared the same concerns and convictions. Let's, let's look at this for a second. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, we see Jonathan uh, coming to his armor bearer with a plan. It's a bad plan. It's a horrible plan. Israel is fighting against some of its enemies. There's a ravine across from the army. They're kind of at a standoff. And this is the, the plan that Jonathan comes up with in 14 and 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, a.k.a. our enemies, Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So Jonathan's great strategic battle plan is, hey, you and me, buddy, we can take these guys. And they do. The the text tells us that God is with them, that God fights with them, and they defeat their enemies. A few chapters later, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we come across what for some of you will be a familiar scene. David is a young shepherd boy. He brings provisions to his brothers who are on the front front lines fighting this same enemy. And what David finds is that there's another standoff, that their enemies have this giant of a man who every day comes out to the battlefield and blasphemes Israel's God, challenging Israel to send somebody to fight him one-on-one. And the Israelites are terrified. David says, well, this is not how it should be. I will take him on. He refuses all offers of help and armor. And in 17 and 45, we see David coming to Goliath. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And like Jonathan, David is successful. God is with him. He kills the enemy, the en- or he kills Goliath, and then the enemy uh, is defeated by Israel's armies. Both David and Jonathan had, to put it mildly, great faith in God. They believed that God's existence and that God's faithfulness to Israel ought to change how they actually lived as individuals. As warriors, this meant that, they, uh, that when they encountered Israel's enemies, enemies who mocked their God, Jonathan and David felt compelled to respond regardless of how outmatched and outnumbered they were. Jonathan and his armor-bearer took on an entire army on their own. David took on the blaspheming giant armed only with his shepherd's tools. In other words, David and Jonathan would become great friends, not because they had a, a strategy of how to develop friends, not because they read some books on how to develop friends, They became great friends because of decisions they had made long before they even met one another. Which again is why we are are limiting our focus to friendship between uh, Christians. 
the faith that David and Jonathan shared could not be limited to a set of beliefs that could be conveniently set aside when necessary. What they believed about God changed how they saw the world. What they believed about God changed how they responded to the world. There was no way that either Jonathan or David could become close friends with someone whose faith was limited to a convenient set of doctrines or some beliefs that could be contained in their head. Their faith led Jonathan and David to do some seemingly crazy things. Uh, Slightly related, I I regularly have conversations with uh, individuals Uh, Christian people who are wondering about dating or marrying somebody who's not a Christian. And uh, I I don't know, somehow they think I have something to say about that, and I I don't usually have anything super helpful to say. So you might not come to me for that conversation. Um, But what I I do say is that the, the, the problem... Uh, with a, a Christian person dating a non-Christian or marrying a non-Christian person, it, it's not, the problem isn't about some seemingly arbitrary biblical command about being unequally yoked, whatever the heck that means. Um, if you look at the context of that, anybody know that passage? The une- so if you ever look at that passage, it actually doesn't have anything to do with marriage. So, you know, it's like it's not a great one to build your entire doctrine of dating and marriage on. So that, that, the problem isn't with a, like a, a passage of Scripture here and there. The, the, the problem, as I see it, is with the, the, the impossibility of two people becoming increasingly intimate without a shared understanding of how the world works, about what is most true in the universe, about the very assumptions governing our daily decisions. The summer... Um, maybe just kind of get at what I mean here from a different angle. The summer I'm officiating a, a wedding between a couple friends of ours. Uh, one of the, the people is uh, Hindu, and the other person is Christian. Um, and so maybe on the surface, like, well, that seems like kind of counter to what you're saying here. And it would be, except that what's actually happening is that there's going to be a wedding between two people who, who don't actually believe anything <laughs> about the tenets of their two different faiths. So these, these are people who are culturally Christian and culturally Hindu. And we've talked about this, and they would say this you know, very definitively. So on that wedding day this summer, there will be sort of these outward religious uh, trappings but in rea- that seem very different from each other. But in reality, these two individuals share a very common outlook of the world. In their own words, it's a, a non-religious outward, outlook. It's a very modern outlook. It... Um, it reflects kind of their, their experience of, of our liberal democracy and, and whatever exactly that, that means. That's, how they, that's what they believe. That's how they kind of function in the world. So in other words, despite their religious categories, they share very similar understandings of how the world works. Am I making sense? Okay. Um, they, they, they share very uh, common understandings of what it means to be a decent human being, of what the goals of life ought to be. This is just not the case for those of us who actually believe that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus cannot be contained to a set of beliefs. 
We who believe that Jesus quite literally changed the entire world and our interaction with the world, we are limited in who we can experience deep and abiding and increasingly intimate friendship with. Am I making sense? On the positive side of that, our convictions and our concerns will mean that you and I will experience friendship with people with whom we would probably otherwise never connect with, but who in Christ share fundamental concerns and convictions about the nature of the universe, which allows us to begin developing deep friendships. For example, David is a shepherd. Jonathan is a prince. They shouldn't have been able to develop this sort of friendship, and yet look what happens when they first meet. We see this first meeting in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. I'll read it for you, verses 1 through 4. Saul summons David into his court. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, this is the first time that Jonathan and David meet. And there's a few things to notice here. First, they clearly hit it off right from the beginning. There's an initial connection here. We talked about this last week in terms of affinity and affection, the very kind of earthy human ways in which we begin to develop relationships. The second thing that maybe stands out a little bit more is this language of covenant, that they make a covenant to one another. I'm going to come back to both of these in a, mis- in a minute, this initial connection and the covenant. But, but what I want you to see here is that Jonathan gives David the gifts of his robe and tunic and sword and bow and belt. It's not like Jonathan just kind of looked around like, oh, here, this is what I have. Take. These are very particular gifts. For Jonathan, the the crowned prince of Israel, these were symbols of his royalty and of his authority. Some scholars wonder if what Jonathan is doing here is recognizing far ahead of time that eventually David would be king instead instead of himself. That's possible. As time passes in the passages, we see that that Jonathan increasingly realizes that it's David who will one day be king and not himself. But what is absolutely clear and very important for us to understand this morning is that Jonathan from the beginning understands that his friendship with David will be a limiting factor in his own life. Jonathan understands that his friendship with David will be a limiting factor factor in his own life. Their friendship is going to be very, very good. It's going to be a source of encouragement to both of them. There will be support. There will be joy. There'll be challenge. There'll be prayer. It will be very, very good. But this friendship will also keep Jonathan from doing the kinds of things that are rightly his to do. His father sees this. He understands this. In one of his rages, Saul says to Jonathan in chapter 20 and 32, as long as the son of Jesse, that's David, lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And he's actually right. 
He's saying to Jonathan, if you let David live, you will not be king. He will be king instead. Jonathan, this friendship is going to limit you. Jonathan, I think, understands this right from the beginning. And this is why he gives to David these symbolic gifts of his royalty and his authority. This is what spiritual friendship does to us. In binding ourselves to another, our ability to make decisions on our own becomes greatly limited. Uh, Years ago, when Maggie and I first started dating, we started to talk about uh, engagement. And that was, as we were relatively young, and that seemed like a big deal, and we were kind of scared to talk about it. But really what we ended up talking about the most was the fact that we had very different visions for our futures. Some of you are dating somebody or you are in a friendship with somebody or you're married to someone where you just, you've always kind of wanted to do the same thing. That was not the case for us. I was pretty sure I wanted to do some sort of mission work in South America, working with local churches, doing ministry. That's what I wanted to do. And Maggie was pretty sure that the one mission trip that she took pretty much fulfilled the requirement of ever having to do that again. That was a big deal for us. And we had to decide. We had to discern. Are we called first to this friendship, which would become a marriage, or are we in fact called to different vocations? And we knew that by saying yes to this friendship and then marriage, we would be limited in what we would do with our futures. Am I making sense? About six or nine months ago, a good friend of mine was kind of reflecting on his job possibilities. He's in a job that he doesn't love. He was looking around for other jobs, couldn't really find anything in Chicago that was interesting, but was starting to see some options outside of Chicago that would take him and his family, maybe even across the country. And kind of in passing, he said, you know, I'm, I'm feeling these days that the only reason that I wouldn't look at these jobs is because of our friendship with your family which I thought, like, oh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> like, we got to be really good friends if that's it, right? But there was just sort of this kind of underlying understanding and assumption that this really matters. And there's commitments that have been made in friendship to each other so that we can't just make a decision about moving somewhere without taking deadly seriously the commitments that we've made as friends. Am I making sense? Are you with me still? This is what spiritual friendship does to us. It introduces limiting factors into our lives. Jonathan understands that to accept God's gift of friendship with David will mean releasing control of some of his future decisions. The testimony of the Bible over and over again, the testimony of generations of Christians over and over again, is that this spiritual friendship is absolutely worth it. It's what we're made for on some level, this type of community and companionship. But we have to acknowledge this morning how absolutely countercultural this sort of decision is. We've been shaped by individualism and consumerism. And these things make no sense in the kind of story we see with Jonathan and David. In the next chapter, in chapter 19, Saul's raging against David and Jonathan stands up and defends him and calms his father down. But in the very next 
chapter. Something sets Saul off again, and he wants David killed. And this time, when Jonathan seeks to intervene for his friend, his, his, his father, Saul, just loses it. He's angry at Jonathan as well and throws a spear at him. This is how, how out of his mind he is in this moment. And so Jonathan comes to David, and, and he knows that he's got to send him away, that their, their friendship has to have some distance to it now. We see in 20, chapter 20, verses 41 and 42, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. And then we come to our passage in chapter 23. David is being hunted by Saul. He's deeply discouraged. He's confused. Did God tell me I was going to be king or not? Why is it happening this way? He's, he's kind of on the, the very brink of desperation. Jonathan learns of this. He sneaks away at risk to his own life. He finds David, and that's the passage uh, we read uh, this morning. And then eight chapters later, Jonathan dies in battle. And Saul falls on his own sword. And 2 Samuel begins with David learning of their deaths. He learns that Saul has died. He learns that he'll never see his friend again. And he uh, sings this song of lament. And let me just read a couple verses of it for you in chapter 1, 25 through 27 of 2 Samuel. David says, How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. And so he grieves and he laments. And then we'll end our reflection on Jonathan and David's friendship a few chapters later in Jonathan, excuse me, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David's king has been established now. There's a bit of stability. And so David starts to ask around. He says, is there anyone left from Saul or Jonathan's house? And the word comes back that, yes, Jonathan had one son who was not killed in battle. And so David has the son brought before him. And traditionally, culturally, what should have happened is that David should have, should have killed the son of Jonathan. This was the way that you established your family's line over the deposed king and, and his line. But instead... Uh, David fulfills the covenant that he made with his friend. He invites uh, Jonathan's son to eat at his table, to live in his home, to be as one of his own sons and family members. In this way, David fulfills his covenant to his friend Jonathan. I'm convinced that one of our biggest hurdles to experiencing the kind of friendship Jesus promises is that we have no imagination for it. And so I think the story of David and Jonathan, again, despite all of the cultural gaps that we have to cross, I think their story helps us to really begin to see spiritual friendship. And I think their friendship helps us to see how we too could experience it. So with their story fresh in our minds, I want to end by suggesting some ways that you and I can actually intentionally choose to develop spiritual friendships. 
I'm just going to share five things briefly with you. And these decisions, these choices can all stand alone, but I've tried to structure them in a loose sequence from the the beginning of a friendship into its maturity. And I'm trying to be as practical as I know how to given this topic. So here's the question. How can you and I, how can we cultivate spiritual friendships? The first is that we expect spiritual friendships, but only a few. David has other friends besides Jonathan. We meet them in the pages of the Old Testament. But none of those friends are quite like Jonathan. Jesus had his 12 apostles, who were certainly his friends. We see him making that very clear in our passage in John. But then he also had his three who were closest to him, and then the one, the one whom Jesus loved, the apostle John, who he was most close to. How can we cultivate spiritual friendships? We can begin by expecting them, but only a few. You see, our capacity for relational intimacy is limited. It's limited by lots of different things, including different personality types. But frankly, we're just limited by our finite humanness. We only have so much capacity for the kind of spiritual friendship that Jesus puts in front of us. Anthropologists will talk about different space that you and I interact with uh, every day, or at the very least every week. The first would be public space. Public space would be uh, the the, the L, the CTA train, or going to a Bulls game. It's the space where you show up and you can remain completely anonymous. Nobody has, they might see you, they don't know who you are, you don't have to tell anybody anything about yourself, that's a public space. And then if you shrink it down a little bit, the next space would be a social space. And I think this would be an example of a social space. You can't be anonymous in this room right here. No matter how hard you try, somebody is going to see you and notice you. But you don't have to disclose anything about yourself in this setting. You can show up, be seen, and not not open up yourself in any kind of way, and that would be very appropriate in a social space. Shrinking it a little bit smaller is personal space. And you might think about our community groups, our small group Bible studies that have 6, 8, 10, 12, 14 people in them. Now, you show up to this space, you certainly can't be anonymous, but also you're going to have to disclose something about yourself. It's just too small to just kind of sit and be, like, that's just not going to work. You know, someone's going to be worried about you, you know, like, you're going to have to at least, like, yeah, I had a good week or something. You're going to have to say something about yourself. You can't just, like, if you're new, you can't just, no, I'm not going to tell you. There's some kind of engagement that has to happen in that social space. And then finally is intimate space. And this, of course, is the smallest, and there's the fewest people in it. And most of us have the capacity for one, two, three, maybe five of these kinds of relationships. And the differentiation here is that this space is where I am fully known, and I know fully the other person. There's no holding back. There's no secrets. There's no covering up. There's no pretending to be somebody else. I'm open before this other person. And I think we can imagine the kinds of friendships that Jesus has in mind, these sorts of spiritual friendships, somewhere on the spectrum between uh, personal and intimate space. Maybe beginning with personal, but leaning toward uh, these intimate spaces. We only have the capacity for so many of these types of friendships. So some of us, I think, have reached a point where we just don't expect uh, friendship of this kind anymore. 
There was maybe a season in our life when it seemed to come, come kind of naturally. For some people, you look back to high school or to college. There was some moment where friendship, important, significant friendship, just kind of seemed to happen to you. And it's, that's not the case anymore. It's not the case for most of us. Most of the time, you've kind of reached a point where it's like, I'm just going to be happy with some acquaintances, you know, or a reunion with those close friends once a year. But I'm not really going to expect it anymore. And then there's others of us, I think, who expect this kind of, profound spiritual friendships to happen to us all the time. So we're asking way too much of people who are like, yo, we're just acquaintances, you know, like we just hang out every once in a while. We, we both like the bulls. That's like the extent of our thing, right? And so there's a way in which we can lean too far in one of these directions where we don't expect this kind of good friendship at all or we expect too much of it. And somewhere in here is a balance of expecting, of anticipating this good gift of friendship, but not too many. It's a balance of acknowledging our limited capacity for intimacy as human beings while simultaneously living into God's promises for us that we can know the love and companionship of friendship. Here's the second thing we can do. First is we expect. Second, we notice moments of relational connection. And again, we talked about this last week as it relates to the bond of friendship being affinity and affection. This is the very kind of earthy, human, physical ways in which we make friends. There's a, an emotional connection, an intellectual connection, a shared interest of some kind. This is how friendships begin. Do we notice when that happens? It's hard to notice them if we're not expecting these friendships to be available to us. Do you notice them? There was some kind of relational connection that was quick with Jonathan and David. And they noticed it. They were aware of it. And so they responded to this this connection that they had to begin building this friendship. They acknowledged that there may be a future friendship available to them. This does not happen all that often. It it is rare that I've had these kinds of moments with people. Um, Interestingly, I had a moment like this on Friday. Maybe because I was thinking about this sermon. I don't know. I was noticing more than I might otherwise. I was at a a pastor's conference for our denomination in Batavia. And I sat next to a pastor who's about 20 years older than me. And... We introduced each other. We started talking a little bit. And within five to ten minutes, we were having a really interesting, encouraging conversation. We ended up having a lot more in common than I ever would have expected. Uh, Overlapping areas of interest and passion and and commitment, similar style of of humor, a little bit of that kind of skeptical cynicism thing that you gotta got to keep at bay. Like th- all of this kind of became clear just in a few minutes. And we ended our conversation by saying, let's get in touch. He lives on the west side of Chicago, works at a church out in the western suburbs. I gave him my card, said, email me, let's grab lunch. Now, the reality is nothing will probably ever come of that. I mean, just to be honest, nothing will probably ever, maybe he doesn't ever email me because he's busy, right? Or maybe we get lunch And it's like, it's good, it's fine, it was a nice lunch, and we'll stay in touch and be acquaintances, and that'll be about it, and that'll be okay too. But there is a chance that over time, that initial connection could lead to a really deep and meaningful friendship. Are you you with me? Am I making sense? So do we notice these initial connections, these initial moments of relational connection? And are we 
willing to follow up on them? Or do we let them slide by? Third, choose to be available. David and Jonathan had a lot of important stuff going on in their lives. They were not bored. They were not just looking for interesting things to do. But they chose to be available to one another. They showed up at very important moments in each other's lives, moments that were not planned. They were able to drop everything and show up to one another to encourage and to support each other. I wonder, I really wonder, how many friendships never develop because we are simply unavailable. I really, I really wonder about that. I really wonder how many friendships uh, uh, remain undeveloped because you and I are just too busy. I've come to believe that some of the loneliest people in this world are also some of the busiest people in this world. We get all kinds of affirmation in our culture for being busy, for having demands on our time, for having people who want to talk to us, for filling up our calendar and our agenda and our schedule. We give very little affirmation for choosing to spend time developing significant friendships that take time and energy. And so we lean into the busyness because we get affirmation there, and the busier we get, the less we are available to live into and cultivate these kinds of friendships. Fourth, be attentive to your friend's spiritual development. This makes a little bit more sense in the context of how we defined spiritual friendship uh, last week. We said that one of the things that makes spiritual friendship different is that it has an actual purpose. It has an aim. The aim is not just to be friends. The aim is something else. It's something beyond the friendship. There's a trajectory of holiness, Spiritual friends are meant to uh, 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 help one another grow up in Christ, to, to mature spiritually. This is what happens in our passage. Jonathan learns that David is in a really bad place. He's in a bad place physically, spiritually, emotionally. He drops everything. He goes to David, and the passage says that he helped David find strength in God. Jonathan prioritized David's spiritual development over his own needs. This is what happens in spiritual friendship. Jonathan surely had other things to do, other places to be, other demands on his time as the crown prince. He dropped that in order to prioritize David's own spiritual development and needs. Are there people in your life who you know well enough to be able to say, I'm going I'm to be able to help you in your spiritual development in this, in this place. Are there people in your life who know you well enough, who can kind of cut out the crap, can see below your lies, and say, I can see what's really going on in your life. And, and I know how to be present to you in this moment to actually help you grow and develop spiritually. This is what spiritual friendship looks like. There's an aim to it. There's a goal to it. There's a purpose to it. There are people who know you well enough to say, that thing you said a second ago, let's come back to that. That thing you said a second ago about kind of having a a, a hard time with your your mom these days. Well, what is that? What's going on there? That thing you said a a second ago about your job being a lot better than it has been. Your job's been horrible. What, What good thing is happening there? What is God doing 
This is what spiritual friends do for one another, is they aid and they prioritize spiritual growth in their friend's life. Lastly, and then we're done. Commit to stay. This is a theme that pops up throughout David and Jonathan's uh, friendship, and it is, frankly, we just don't have much precedent for it anymore, and it's their covenant in friendship to each other. We don't do this, and yet the Bible is full of this covenantal language. We've limited it to marriage, and certainly marriage is an important place for people to make covenant vows to each other, but in in the biblical perspective, a covenant relationships exists Uh, far beyond just marriages. It exists between friends. It exists between groups of people. It it, it includes people and covenant relationship with God. And interestingly, there have been times in the church's life where we've remembered this. There have been times where it was actually normal for Christian friends to make covenant vows to each other. Not just in marriage, but as, as friends, as small groups of friends, as individuals in friendship saying that, that we want to commit to one another in friendship. We want there to be a community around us who bears witness in Christ to this. We are committed in friendship to each other. Have you ever heard of that happening? <laughs> right? Like we hear them like, that's, that's a little, that's almost weird. Like I heard that. When I started like digging into this, like that's kind of odd. That's sort of strange. Like we don't have a category for that. And yet I think the Bible actually gives us imagination and ways of thinking about this level of commitment that, yes, does include marriage, but isn't uh, uh, contained only by marriage. That there's a way in which friends, too, can make these kinds of commitments to each other, saying, I will prioritize this friendship and this relationship. Uh, author and theologian Wesley Hill, who I quoted earlier, he points out the differences um, that such commitments can make in friendships. So he, he kind of gives two different examples, two different kinds of friendship. The first is um, uh, the friendship we could call, you're mine because I love you. He writes, in this kind of relationship, you and I may belong to a special friendship and share many of the joys that kind of friendship makes possible. But such joys will last only as long as my love lasts. If I tire of you or am hurt by you, I am free to walk away. No obligations, no hoops to jump through, no strings attached. You only belong to me if I can keep up my love for you and you can keep up yours for me. My guess is that most of us have experienced this kind of friendship and have been surprised by that moment when we thought everything was cool with this friendship and then this person just kind of drifts away and walks away and only later do we sort of find out what the rationale for their leaving was. You're mine because I love you. You're mine until I don't love you anymore. And then uh, 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 Dr. Hill says, uh, uh, writes this about another kind of friendship. This kind we could call, I love you because you're mine. He says here, my love for you isn't the basis of our connection. It's actually the other way around. We are bound to each other, and therefore I love you. You may still bore me or wound me or otherwise become unattractive to me, but that doesn't mean I'll walk away. You're not mine because I love you. 
I love you because you're already and always mine. We've made promises to each other. We've committed to each other. In the sight of our families and our churches and in the strength of those vows, I will, God willing, go on loving you. Now, my guess is that if, if the author was writing about marriage and kind of making this differentiation, we'd all be like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. But when he explicitly uh, includes friendship here, I, I'm just guessing, if you're like me, that this level of commitment being extended to friendship, it, it almost is, is too much. It almost sounds wrong. And yet, what does Jesus say? Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And if that is true, if that's our starting point for friendship, then making these sorts of commitments to one another in order to nourish a long-lasting friendship might actually be normal. Jonathan was willing to renounce his throne for God's will in his friend's life. He was, in a very real sense, willing to die so that David could live the life God had promised him. Like David with Jonathan, may each of us know the love of friends who will lay down their lives for us. Like Jonathan for David, may each of us know the love of friendship that frees us up to lay down our lives for the good of our friends. In Jesus Christ, we have seen such love. In Jesus Christ, we can expect to know such love. And through Jesus Christ, we have the power to experience and to express such love. Amen? Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. And so now, Holy Spirit, please continue to speak. Continue to uh, increase our capacity to imagine a relational fulfillment and contentment and and joy alongside a a, a way of being friends that will challenge us and, and limit us and inconvenience us, but at the end of the day will be for our good and for your glory. I pray, Lord God, that you would be forming this particular church to be not simply a collection of individuals striving to become a community, but a collection of friends uh, who who are uh, demonstrating to the world um, the very fundamental change that you bring about in our lives. We thank you for calling us your friends. we, we, we thank you that uh, we are not simply acquaintances. We, we thank you that we are known fully and completely by you. We thank you that uh, 
in Christ, we know everything we need to know about God. And so from this relationship, from this friendship, Lord God, allow us to be a people who extends friendship to others and who experiences it deeply in our own lives. As we receive the offering this morning, Lord, we pray that you would put to work these gifts, these tithes, uh, to work for your purposes, uh, for the good of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.